This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from the City University of New York. Today, race at NPR. My guest is Laura Garbus from Brown University. My co-host for today is Victor Ray from the University of Iowa. Our discussion was recorded on February 6, 2020. Okay, we are here with Laura Garvis of Brown University. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. She recently published a piece on NPR and race. Where was it? Um, so it's on Social Archive right now, if folks want to check it out. It's a preprint. Okay, I will we'll delve into it today. And also we have Victor Ray from the University of Iowa. It's not, it's very nice to meet you. I've seen you on Twitter for ages, Victor. Longtime follower. <laughs> it's nice to meet you too. Thank you for the uh, invite. Yeah, it's wonderful. So let's talk about your work, Race at NPR. What's it about? Okay, so in general, I'm interested in the racialization of voice in public radio, particularly in white settler nations. So what I'm doing for my dissertation is I'm looking at both the United States and Australia and looking at white settler logics around organizational formation and how that um, how that actually bleeds into the logics of even vocal performance. Um, so these these ways we wouldn't even think of, um, just kind of combining the idea of linguistic anthropology, of, uh, you know, race and language ideologies with existing work on race and racialized organizations to look at the case of uh, public radio. Um, so that's the project broadly. Uh, a, a bit more specifically about what I've been working on for this particular paper, I'm interested in the organizational formation of NPR and how it became a white dominant institution, a white racialized organization. Before we bring Victor in, who's the expert on this, I just have one more sort of naive question for someone who knows nothing. When you say the whiteness of NPR, mm-hmm. what is that? What is that? What does that mean? Yeah, so oh, so whiteness, this ever-shifting concept that is kind of a structuring force in our society. So when I say whiteness, I mean category of practices and a historical hoarding of resources that are based on particular racial and colonial ideologies from the foundation of these nation states. So from the foundation of the U.S., uh, it's predicated on this logic of white superiority and white dominance. And then as a through line, it outlasts these subsequent quote-unquote racial reforms. So we have this notion of racial progress through legal reform and the granting of really real legal rights, but at its base, whiteness sort of structures the logic of the society, given kind of how we were founded in uh, slavery and genocide. So I'm trying to get my head around this concept of whiteness in terms of what we would experience like how does what is white about NPR like how can we identify it if if we you know aren't able to see whiteness in our everyday life can you give us some sort of guidepost to recognize it 
Yes, I always have such. I, I study whiteness and then I have such a hard time articulating it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's fair. Ask most sociologists to describe structure, and you're going to get a bunch yeah. of different. <laughs> Same thing. Um, yeah. It's it's fair. Yes. Okay. So so when I'm thinking about the term whiteness, and when I'm thinking about the larger interdisciplinary studies, so whiteness studies, I'm thinking about whiteness as a property that sort of goes beyond like phenotypical ascription, right? And I'm thinking of something super historical. So I'm thinking about when race emerges as this organizing principle um, in the 19th century in order to enforce um, subjugation. And this racial formation process, like Omi and Wanant, like making up people through othering, and then I'm thinking about how through othering non-white populations, whiteness becomes the operating principle that is assumed natural and right. So you're asking, okay, well, if it's sort of structuring us and it's all around us, then how would we identify it if like if it's identified yeah. by what it is not? It is if it's identified by not being marked. It, it in some some senses feels slippery then. But I, I think actually we could go to um Victor, you had sort of like uh four points on what a racialized organization is and does. Enlighten us, Victor. Well, I think I always think this question is a really interesting one because one, I think the idea that it's hard to tell what whiteness is, I actually think emerged once a critique of whiteness as a social structure emerged, right? So like when you look at the history of the US, like for a very long time, most white people had no issue saying what whiteness was and what it wasn't, right? There's the one drop rule. There's there's a literally like state by state variation in like the proportion of blood you could have if you were a person who was like noticeably mixed race. There was literally like you can vote, <laughs> you can drink in a water fountain, you have access to loans, right? Like it was, it was like very clearly marked and delineated. And I think like, on, so I, I, I want to go to this, like this sort of like flip, you know, how do you recognize pornography? Like, you know, it when you see it, like there's a, a real way in which sometimes I think that question of like, how do we recognize whiteness is like, kind of deflecting because and then and then what I also do is say like when you look at like in in the paper um in Laura's paper when you look at like the founding it was all people who identified themselves as white right mm -hmm. and if we take self-identification as the criterion of racial identity like we do in sociology then it's safe to say like that's not the only thing but it's that group of white folks monopolizing a set of resources in a way that can have long-term impacts on how we think about race really broadly. So I think about this, I mean, all the time. Professionally? Uh, <laughs> yeah, professionally. It's, it is like in my job description. But I do think that, yeah, I think, uh, and again, with the flip side, like we have no issue recognizing like, HBCUs or black banks or even even black capitalism, right? Like the, uh, the idea of black capitalism carries with it the implicit assumption that capitalism has been serving white folks yeah. in a very clear way. And so, 
yeah, I guess that's, I'll leave it there. We were having this discussion. I, I came from, I, I teach a class on racism in the U.S. media, and I just come from there. Um, but we we kind of started talking about, well, we were talking about actually um, Ida B. Wells and her mm-hmm. and her work as a public journalist. And I think she did a really good job talking about the whiteness that pervaded the structure of journalism at that time. And I think what she does really well is that she doesn't just call them racist, which they were. And she she calls out the New York Times for saying, you know, for presenting lynchings as if white men were these brave, valiant, um, you know, sort of... Uh, vigilante justice givers. But she also calls out their, the New York Times's at that time, obsession with credentialing and professionalization in mm. order to define civilization through who does not have the credentials and who uh, who doesn't have the right to say things. Right, so, who has access. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, um, so one thing that I would identify in terms of NPR as a white organization and most unmarked media organizations as organizations is something that Ida B. Wells called out in an era that we can now look at as so overtly racist, but is still happening today is the mismatch of amount of sources as experts being so heavily white, right? Um, Because I think often what happens is like this conversation, I'll be having this conversation amongst journalists and there are some who agree, but then some are like, well, I'm a white journalist and what can I do? Who like, you know, I'm phenotypically white, like, like I'm red as white. And it's just like, it's, it's more than that. And part of it is about this natural assumption that whiteness and um, things associated with whiteness become the mode of expertise. I don't know if that makes sense. Maybe can I take a crack at what I'm gathering? Yes. So what I'm gathering is that there is a sort of particular worldview that is built on concepts or beliefs about what's important or relevant or what matters. And all of them indirectly reinforce sort of a broader understanding of society that might privilege white people or might create tacit understandings or create sort of assumptions that ultimately favor white people in getting the things that they want focused on or getting the assets that they see as that they possess seen as valuable. And you're saying that it's, it's a very subtle type of worldview where people will gently reinforce it in different ways by like paying attention to one thing, but not paying attention to something else. And the sum total of that is that the media communicates a world that does marginalize people or diminish things that, marginalized people possess while sort of hypervalorizing the interests or the characteristics or whatever of the majority. Is that sort of... Yeah, I actually, I want to right now shout out um, this podcast called The View From Somewhere. And it's based on a book that um, that Lewis Raven Wallace wrote um, after being fired for Marketplace um, for rejecting the notion of objectivity as being so simple yeah. and as yeah. being, you know, unchallenged and unquestionable. But I, I actually just taught this in class earlier today, so I'm thinking about it. And, you know, a quote they, that the students really loved and really drove the point home for them, Ramona Martinez, who produces the show, said, you know what, it's just that, like, uh, objectivity 
in our world, the world that we're in, reinforces the dominant status quo, and the dominant status quo is racist, right? So, so it's it's basically not being able to see the structures of racial hierarchies for what they are, because you're so shrouded in, you're shrouded at the center in this white dominant conception of what is right and what is natural and what is civilized and what is good. So I, I want to say a couple of things. Uh, one of them is Fanon has this quote, somehow objectivity is always against the native. Mm-mm. And it's very similar to the one that you just pointed yeah. out, right? That somehow this this whole objective edifice of this quote unquote objective edifice is somehow directed against a certain group of people. I also think um, maybe I didn't talk about this enough in your paper, but you do talk about this quite a bit in your paper because there's a section on your paper on white habitus. Yes. Right. Yeah. And. And so drawing on Bourdieu and Benia Silva to talk about how a place like NPR um, has a lot of assumptions, cultural assumptions that are coded white, um, that are taken for granted, right? And seen as natural, normal, and not exclusionary, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so I do think that there's, yeah, concepts that talk about how whiteness comes to be taken for granted, like white habitus. Yeah, and I think I think habitus is a good way to get at like uh, orienting you around the array of options that you see at the table. Yeah. Like it's an orientation towards realms of possibility, and often those realms of possibility like have to do with like the best choice being the way it has been done before, and the way it has been been done before has been done in a racially exclusionary space. If that makes sense. Yeah, and we could think about it also in terms of you know what we think of as individual tastes clusters in Mm. very clear ways and we can tease them out. And I would say that even survey researchers believe this, right? When they ask attitude questions from different groups and then show that there's a wide variance between what blacks collectively think about certain issues and what white folks think about certain issues, right? And we can see that, yeah, that's a set of quote unquote, white attitudes, or if we look at like political polarization right now in the country, the parties are, yes, polarized, but it's also like along some very deeply racialized sets of cultural attitudes. So I spent the morning reading this paper and your other working paper with Daniel Hirschman. Mm -hmm. They were both on Social Archive. And I really liked the paper and, and I wanted to hear you talk a little bit about the paper, and then I had some questions that I wrote down, but hopefully hearing you talk about them will jog my memory. I was really interested in this idea that you develop on white institutional isomorphism and how one of the things that you touched on in the paper was the idea of imprinting. And I've been thinking about this in my own work and that how the idea of imprinting as it's been taken up in organizational theory ignores that so many foundational organizations in the U.S. were imprinted in a system of explicit segregation, right? And how that imprinting still manifests itself in all kinds of ways that remained relatively under or unexplored in the organizational literature. And I thought your paper was getting at some of that in a really interesting way. And I wanted to hear you talk about that. 
Yes, definitely. So, uh, so just an overview for those unacquainted with the paper. Basically, it looks at the foundation of NPR from the years from the Public Broadcasting Act until about 1977. So, in particular, I feel like the main source that I'm looking at is founder discussions and founder decisions. And so what I do is I trace a lot of board meeting minutes, which are all available at the National Public Broadcasting Archives in College Park, Maryland. Um, These monthly discussions that these founders have about creating a media that is supposed to reflect America in all of its diversity. And in the paper, I have a photo of these founders who are having these conversations. It's um, it's very telling who is in that room when they're deciding what is to reflect everything. So from there, I end up kind of tracing from this foundation and these foundational decisions to about 1977 when there's this uh, report on the progress of public radio in public media more generally in serving what they called in the report quote-unquote minority publics Um, and they it was it was a damning report they basically said um NPR and PBS are asleep at the transmitter um, in terms of service of minority publics. So they find that, you know, there's not enough programming, there's not nearly enough programming for anybody besides upper middle class white men. They find that the hiring is mostly of white men. And um, what was the third one? Oh, station ownership is mostly by white men. So you know, the obvious puzzle here is the idea that it serves everybody and this is its outcome. And it's you can look at that photo of the decision makers and kind of say, oh, well, this makes a lot of sense. But I kind of wanted to drill down on the foundational process of this imprint. And so by looking at these decisions, um, we find that they make station standards that disqualify kind of lower resource uh, stations from becoming NPR member stations. Mm. So this actually leads to my next question. And I wanted you to talk about this point in particular, because I was like, here is something that is fundamentally race neutral, mm-hmm. right? But it has produced a structure that still impacts ownership. I would imagine today, I'm yes. speculating beyond your what's in the paper. But when you, like, I had that in my notes, like, this point is amazing, because if it, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was about wattage, Yes, and so it just sounds so wonky and so irrelevant, right? So at first, so, so, uh, yeah, just to give a larger view of these three mechanisms I'm looking at, so, so um, the two other mechanisms aren't particularly surprising, right? So it's not surprising that people are hiring based on their existing networks. That's something that has been sort of circulating through um, the orgs literature, the, the hiring literature for a while now. It's not particularly surprising that when they decided programming was of the national interest was not going to be foreign minorities. It was very clear it was going to be for who was in that room. That's not particularly surprising. Um, but when you're talking about station standards, and you're talking about the watts and something, you just think to yourself, oh, no, that's about quality. Like, we, we want 
people to be able to hear from far enough away, all of these different things. But when you actually think about how that intersects with how people have historically had resources and who has the resources and how so many universities has the resources to have this particular wattage, um, at least 10 watt power, versus say, and this is taking it way back before the Public Broadcasting Act actually, to when W.E.B. Du Bois first got on the radio and said, oh my gosh, we need a station for the NAACP. Like, let's figure out how to do this. He writes a letter, and this is all very well documented in Jennifer Lynn Stover's work on the sonic color line. So she she looks at how Du Bois encounters radio, says, what an amazing opportunity, and then yeah. ends up finding, wait, how much, how much was it? It was $125,000 for the license, which the NAACP did not have. And then on top of that, they said, and also, we're still trying to figure out who gets licensed and when. So we're just we're just suspending the the license giving for now until we figure out the airwaves. And then there was not a black owned radio station until 1949 in general. That was WERD in Atlanta. So you can kind of see how this very technical wonky thing comes with its own history. And that, you know, we say public radio was created at X date, but educational radio had been happening since the early 20th century, since we decided that there was use for radio besides the military talking back and forth. And then like, um, yeah, at first it was mostly used as a military device um, to communicate things during wartime. And then it was that plus um, like, teenage hobbyists, teenage boys kind of trying to interfere with that or talk to each other. So when it went beyond the military and went beyond hobbyists, and it actually began to be seen as a form of mass media, um, immediately the U.S. government took interest. And it was kind of, I feel as if I'm losing my train of thought here, but the, the idea of the allocation of the airwaves being a fundamentally racialized thing. When you're talking about racial imprinting, it's like, yeah. if the airwaves are segregated at that time, how can you expect in the 1960s and 1970s for us to have these technological airwave standards without there being a racial bias behind them, whether it's intentional or not? However, having all these guys in this room, that's not something that comes up because they hadn't face this community-based discrimination for the decades previous. This is, I think it's a third one of your points that I also wanted to hear you talk about a little bit more, mm -hmm. right? So this is a good faith attempt by folks to create a genuinely inclusive national radio, right? And then you show that yet the decision was made that concerns of communities of color were particular and not part of the national agenda. Mm -hmm. and, and how did they get to that decision? Was it a matter of audience? I mean, in the sense of like, who could afford, like who was listening to radios, who, who they were trying to target? So, you know what, honestly, I made assumptions going into the archive and I was proven wrong. So I thought there was going to be something about, oh, wanting to get patrons and wanting to get um, like people being monthly donors because that's the story it's become. Uh, okay. But that wasn't it. That wasn't it when I was looking at these founding decisions, right? What actually what was happening was they were saying, okay, the national interests versus minority interests. And at no point did the word white come up. 
and at no point did the term like a man come up, right? It's totally unmarked, right? So specialty programming becomes the responsibility of the local stations and we'll deal with stuff that everybody cares about. They they never said this is what white men care about. They said, yeah, this is what everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Our interest is universal. Exactly. It's the universalizing of their interests. And, and still then saying, okay, basically we're giving extra then because we're giving specialized programming. Special. Yeah. And it's, it's, 2% 2% of this will be specialized programming. And guess what? Most of these hours are jazz, but. Yeah, that was an amazing, That you have an amazing, I don't remember the exact statistics in there, but you have an amazing, like here were the number of program hours and out of the thousands of program hours. It was like 170 were for specialty people mm-hmm. of color marked stuff. Right. And the majority of that was music and entertainment. Right. Like it wasn't news stories. It wasn't stuff about, you know, concerns of communities of color. Yeah. And one thing that was challenging about that was the fact that diversity as a construct was still kind of gaining its particularities as we know it today. Like, we, you know, when you talk about diversity and inclusion officers today, you know what the project is and you know, basically it's about, it's about race and gender. But when we were talking about diversity, then it just sort of like they were talking about children. They were talking about older folks. They were talking about diversity of age of any sort of metric which uh which kind of muddied it and actually what i ended up relying on a lot too was um the analysis of this minority task force report as well they they provided a lot of um good analysis because they spent two years doing this uh deep analysis of what was going on i was struck by the contemporary resonance of that report i know right yeah yeah i also talked to the woman that headed the task force, Gloria Anderson, about kind of what, what she felt about it. And more or less, it, it was a report that was reported and then set aside. It didn't, it didn't turn any tides or turn any heads. There was a New York Times article about it, I found, but um, that's, that's really about it. Yeah, I think the, to talk about the contemporary residents, NPR just this episode actually came about because NPR had released their new diversity numbers, which aren't that different than their old mm-hmm. diversity numbers. And then there was a discussion on Twitter about, about your work. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I was struck by that. I guess the, the last thing I'll ask, uh, it's an unfair question. Can I say something about contemporary resonance first though? Yes. Okay. Yes. Because, because one thing I did find interesting when, when the numbers came out and then it was circulating around Twitter, if you actually look at the ombudsman report each year, the rhetoric is all very similar in terms of wanting to do better, knowing we're not doing enough and talking about mentorship, diversity training, recruitment and retention, talking about getting bodies in spaces and getting better interpersonal type of communication. And that is not to underplay those aspects. That's that's immensely important. But, you know, these are all more micro level fixes. So, um, so what I hope 
what I hope kind of comes out of this paper or the thrust of this notion of racialized organizations is to, to kind of talk about the structural material conditions of ownership and management that got us here, yeah. you know, par particularly the idea of the 10 watt station or um, even as I'm starting my dissertation research right now, what I'm hearing folks saying, they're like, okay, cool, diversity and hiring, that's fine. You know what made the biggest impact for people when they had to start doing paid internships at NPR? That changed a whole lot for a whole lot of people and just changed the material conditions of who was allowed to enter. Who was allowed to enter because who could afford mm -hmm. the paid versus the unpaid internship, right? Absolutely. It's again, it's, about, it's fundamentally about resources. I guess I, I wonder, so I think you're illustrating a general process and I wondered if you had ideas on what other type of organizations it would or would not apply to. And again, I know it, it, it's beyond the paper, yeah. so it can be speculative. Mm -hmm. but. Oh, yeah. I actually, I think a whole host of it. I mean, but I feel like the one that sticks out to me most because I'm, I'm absorbing it all the time is academia. I mean, I suppose people at times critical scholars talk about uh, primarily white institutions, and that's that's become a thing that people are marking. But I don't think in the public consciousness we talk about primarily white institutions the way we talk about HSIs, Hispanic-serving institutions, or yeah. HBCUs. And even though we're talking about voice and voice performance and cultural production, all of those performative elements, I do think hold even when you're not doing quote unquote cultural production in the space, because I think you, I think what NPR serves as a case is it serves um, kind of this element of us being able to talk about the different aesthetics of the NPR space um, and how you're taught to behave and perform on air. But I would also argue that in higher education, there are ways to act, behave, perform, and speak. There are certain markers to make, like cultural markers to note. There are certain things to know, and then there are certain patterns of talking and also barriers to entry that you might not immediately think of as racialized, such as the reimbursement process of some universities. So you, you travel for work, and you just are, you put it on your card and you then go ahead and go get reimbursed. This doesn't work for everybody, but it's the, the assumption behind it is that it was constructed at a time when everybody that was allowed into academia was also not of the working class, was mostly white upper class and male. So um, just different spaces where we can think about this. And I, and I think those kind, kind of both hold resonance because um, I think both institutional spaces have render themselves as um, politically progressive comparatively to, to other typical organizations. I'll which I also thought was a really good part of your paper, right? In looking at this in an organization that is typically thought of as it liberal or even left mm -hmm. in showing how the processes of exclusion aren't coded on the left-right, you know, 
binary sense of politics that we so often use in the U.S., that they're much deeper than that, and that people even attempting to alleviate them can often reproduce the same things. So I thought that was an interesting take. Like, this might be a conservative estimate of how these processes are working if we looked at, like, the NRA. Right. Or, Absolutely. Or, yeah. Or, yeah. <laughs> So what, what's what been the reaction to your take, Laura, on NPR? People, uh, you know, is it, has it been very positive? Are people saying, okay, so what's the point? Have you gotten hostile reactions? Not very many hostile reactions, actually. Um, yeah. Maybe it's who I surround myself with. but <laughs> um, <laughs> Selection effect. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm not, I, I don't think that it would be a universally beloved take. I just don't think mm-hmm. that I, it's <laughs> gone out to the entire universe. Um, so, but, um, but in general, folks have been very supportive. And particularly as I move on to my larger dissertation project, where I interview, one of my main parts of my um, dissertation is interviewing people of color in public media. Mm-hmm. And so I just... I'm a little bit preaching to the choir when I'm talking to folks like that. But the reason why is because I got this idea from Chenjirai Kumanyika, who's a professor of communications at Rutgers University. When he wrote this thing, and I'll, I'll give you the link for the show notes, but he wrote this thing called The Vocal Color in Public Radio. Mm. Um, and he was talking about the notion that when he first tried creating a radio story he was trying to sound like himself but he had ira glass in his head like all, all up in his head like this hegemonic ira That's glass boy, like yeah. coming, and, it, and, and it impacted the way that he decided to speak or didn't even decide to speak the the way that it, the words were coming out of his mouth, right? Uh, and he had to do like three or four takes until he was like, oh no, that's Chenjirai in there, right? Um, so these these subtle ways of cultural hegemony that sort of orient us towards what's the correct and proper public radio voice. So this was written in, I can't remember, 2014 or 2015. So, but in 2015, it took off on Twitter. And I'm not that good at Twitter, but I followed it. I followed the hashtag and the hashtag was pub radio voice. And it was something, there was an intuition there that everybody knew what we were talking about when we were talking about pub radio voice. But there had been no like theorization to go alongside it, really, um, in terms of public radio spaces. Um, So I'm like, this is some interesting social theorization happening within a professional sphere. And I want to run with it. I want to I want to record this systematically. And I want to understand what folks have to offer thinking about what it feels to be in a white dominant space um, and perform in this white dominant space. So I've gotten really positive feedback. Also, people are, I'm learning how very, very, very busy reporters are, broadcasters are, producers are doing their main job, but always have like a side hustle, kind of like you do you do with this this podcast, right? This this extra work on the side. And yet we'll set aside an hour or two to talk to me. And I think it's because it's tapping into something that has not been academically named so much. And and that being said, there's a lot of work that's been done, like um, Jenny Stover's The Sonic Color Line, 
and then Jonathan Rosa and Nelson Flores talking about what is appropriate, like ratio-linguistic ideologies, things like that. But, um, but I just wanted to take the case of public radio as an organization that is white from the perspective of folks of color that navigate that whiteness every day, that are able to look and say, yes, no, that's it, because I, f- I feel it, right? You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. Special thank you to Laura Garbus of Brown University. Her article is When the Blank Slate is White, available for download on Social Archive. We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter, at Annex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Lisette Moreno. On behalf of Victor Ray, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.